And I would like to invite the rest of us to open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're using the Bibles that we provided for you, that'll be page 656 in the Bibles that we provided for you. If you have brought your own Bible, Jeremiah is uh, toward the back of the Old Testament, past the book of Psalms. So open out your Bible up to the middle and start flipping toward the end, and you will quickly run into Jeremiah. It's more than 60 chapters long and um, has a lot of great truth for us to consider. But we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 7 of Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning. On August 24th, 410, the Visigoths sacked Rome and brought the great empire to its knees. This empire that had once basically ruled the world was left searching for answers, right? The great philosophers and leaders of of the city began searching for answers. Hey, why did this happen? What led to this? How could this have happened to our great city? Thankfully, there was a man there named Augustine. Augustine was one of the greatest theologians the world has ever known. And and Augustine took up the challenge to answer the politicians and philosophers of his day, and he penned a letter that was a little longer than most of the letters we write. It was a thousand pages long. (laughs) And it was an, an answer, a polemic, a critique to help the people of Rome understand what had happened from not just a natural framework, but also from a theological framework. And that letter was known as, is known as the city of God. What Augustine argued in this work is that Rome, as great as it always was, was simply a very small city, a small piece of a story that is wrapped up in the larger story of God's history. And Augustine posited that in reality, in every city on the planet, for all of time, there are always two cities, right? There there is the city of God, those people who know their God and worship their God truly. And then there is the city of man. The city of God has the basic uh, love to God and, and, and worships him, whereas the city of man is, is kind of chasing after all of these idols. He said that the city of God is, is, is made for eternal life. That's their pursuit and their reflection, whereas the city of man is actually headed toward an eternal death. And most importantly for us this morning to consider, Augustine argued that those who belong to the city of God should live in a particular kind of way to show and display and to reflect to the people who belong to the city of man exactly what it looks like to live in the city of God. And so that's what we want to focus on this morning. We want to talk about working as a city within a city, and we see this in the first seven verses of Jeremiah 29. And as we work our way through this text, I believe we're going to see that God calls his people to work for the good of their city as a city within a city, all right? God calls his people to work for the good of their city as a city within a larger city. Now, where do we get this? Well, let's jump into the first four verses of Jeremiah chapter 29. It says this. 
These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shephan and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, I just want to pause and stop right here. Because the first encouragement I want us to see this morning is that we should live as the city of God while we dwell in the city of man. There was a great change in residence for the people of God, the people who once dwelled in Jerusalem. They were uprooted. They were taken into exile, out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. And Jeremiah had the unenviable task of declaring to the people of Israel at the beginning of Jeremiah on through that, hey, exile is coming. Judgment is coming. We are a people who have been called to live for God's glory and we are his possession, but we are actually a people that, as Jeremiah chapter 2 says, have forsaken the, the true and living fountain that God is for these broken cisterns of water that, that can hold no water. These idols, these worthless idols. So, so this, the, the, though Jerusalem was a, a beautiful city, a great city, the city of David, the city of God, it was filled with people at the time who had gone morally bankrupt and had forsaken their God. And so Jeremiah is a voice, a very unpopular voice, a, a voice that was to be persecuted for his voice to call the people back to God. And he's saying part of how God is going to do this, is he's going to get your attention by sending you into exile. He's not just going to send you into any place in exile. He's going to send you into Babylon. Babylon would have been the last place that the people of Jerusalem would have been sent to. Why? Because the Babylonians, Babylon was the capital of Assyria. They were a brutal and wicked people. They were the dominant player in the world at that time, and they ruled by conquest in a quite kind of nasty way. They were the kind of barbaric people that would decapitate their enemies and place what they decapitated on stakes, if you can kind of get the drift. So the, 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 the change in residence could have not been more drastic. It's not surprising then that, that when they received this letter, this is not probably what they wanted to hear. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're, they're probably wanting to hear, hey, God has a word from, for us Hopefully, it's going to say something like, hey, don't unpack all of your boxes. You know, let's, let's just be prepared, be ready, and go mode to head back to Jerusalem as quick as we possibly can. And, oh, by the way, there were many false prophets who were saying just that very thing. Hey, peace, peace. Everything's going to be okay. We'll be back in Jerusalem in a matter of weeks. Don't worry about it. Keep your boxes packed. 
much like some of the health and wealth preachers of today. We see them on TV. They're filled plenty of churches throughout America and sadly around the world now is this kind of prosperity gospel, which is no gospel spreads. that basically says God wants you to be rich, so sow a thousand dollars and you'll reap a million dollars. As if we give our treasure in order to receive greater treasure instead of giving our treasure because God is our greatest treasure. So, so there was all of these, you know, false prophets who were saying, hey, it's going to be okay. But Jeremiah is saying, you know what? There, there's, a, there's a different plan here. God has a different plan. You're actually going to dwell there. So we're going to say, we're going to, you're going to dwell there for, for 70 years. So you're going to live in the city. You're going to dwell in that city. And let's not miss the careful wording here because this is important for us to understand. Verse 4, what does it say? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom what? Whom I have sent into exile. So so hang on just a minute, Tina. How does this work out? Who who is the agent here? Who is the key player? Is it Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians? They were on conquest. They had, I mean, verse 1 told us whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. So so Nebuchadnezzar is an agent, right? Lowercase a, small a. They took the people of Jerusalem into exile. But on the other hand, in a greater sense, the the bigger uh, reality is that God is accomplishing his purposes through the Babylonians. So God is actually the uppercase A, agent who was working in this for, believe it or not, the good of his people in his own glory. So, so here's a little thought for you, a little devotional thought. Just because they had a drastic, unimaginably hard change in location, change in residence, did not change their identity as the people of God. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't matter what our circumstances may be. It doesn't matter how hard it is to get along with the people around us. Our identity in God does not change if we belong to him. So, so just because they had been uprooted from Jerusalem to Babylon does not mean that they stopped being his people, God's treasured possession, the sheep of his pasture. And this is good news for us, Right? I mean, this is, this is just read the New Testament. I love the, the words of 1 Corinthians 3.23, the th- three potent words. You are Christ's. You are Christ. You belong to, if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you belong to him. In whatever location where you may live or the circumstances that surround you, do not change who you are as the people of God, this city that dwells in a particular city. And so I want us to to understand that we, if we have received Christ, are actually citizens of two different cities. We have a dual citizenship. This is the clear testimony of the New Testament that's teaching us all throughout. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so the question for us to 
ask and attempt to answer this morning is then how can we as Christians live in the particular culture in which God has placed us? How is it that we as the people of God, the city of God, can, can dwell and live effectively in the city of man? And I want to provide a simple framework, all right? This is, this is um, you know, not as deep as we could go, but it's, it's a very simple kind of framework for understanding three typical approaches to how Christians dwell in culture, okay? Number one, you have Christians against the culture, all right? So, so this response typically looks to uh, reject most everything in the culture. So it's either rejecting the culture or retreating from the culture to kind of go live in our own little Christian ghettos, detached, separated from the rest of the world. A friend of mine likes to call this cultural anorexia. It is, it is, it is getting away from that which is of the culture as much as we possibly can. So let's go to the movies this afternoon. No way. I'll pass on that. Let's pick up a couple magazines, you know, at the, at the, at the store. No, you know, that's, that's of the devil, right? Let's go to the beach, man. It's going to warm up, you know, sometime eventually around here. Let's go to the beach. No, that might be a place where I sin. So let's not go to the beach, right? And sometimes even churches kind of prescribe these legalistic prescriptions and rules. Hey, you can't do this, you can't do that, and, and just kind of reject everything. And, and let me be clear, there are certain things we do need to reject. God calls us to be a distinct people. He calls us to live a particular kind of life. And so there are absolutely things that we need to reject. But what I want to say is that that should not be the, the, the kind of um, general posture that we take toward the culture. Conversely, we also do not want to be Christians of the culture. Christians of the culture basically just receive and imbibe the culture holistically. It's failing to draw the distinction between being in the world but not of the world. So it is receiving so much that you really can't see a difference between the church and the world because the church looks so much like the world. My friend calls this cultural obesity, right? It's just taking everything in and accommodating completely to the culture. So we don't want to be Christians against the culture. We don't want to be Christians of the culture. What we want to be, I think, is Christians in the culture. This is a response that is neither naive on the one hand or afraid on the other, but it seeks to transform the culture by redeeming what is redeemable in the culture. This is a third and a better way. We could call this, I think, cultural fitness. All right? It is, it is being wise about how we interact and engage with the culture where we know what to reject on the one hand, we know what to receive on the other hand, and we know how to live in such a distinctly Christian way that we can be proponents and agents of change wherever we are, in whatever sphere of life, relationship, neighborhood, job that we may find ourselves in. This is what Abraham Kuyper referred to as sphere sovereignty. Listen to this quote. Maybe one you want to write down. He says this about cultural engagement. He says, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off 
from the rest. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. (laughs) Politics, mine. Business, mine. Education, mine. Leisure, mine. Service work, mine. The church, mine. God is sovereign over all. This is his world that he has made. And so as Christians, then we have the opportunity to, whatever sphere we may find ourselves, whatever your vocational pursuit may be, you have the opportunity to live a distinctly Christian life in that sphere. So this is a call, I think, from Scripture and certainly from Kuiper's theology, sound theology of the world that God has made and this God who rules over all, to to total and complete cultural engagement. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about medicine or the military or, or law, government. I mean, just run down the list. God wants us to, to engage all of these spheres in light of who he is and the lives that he calls us to live. And so this is why we are doing this series, right? This is, this is one of the main motivations why we are looking at Work Reimagined because we want to equip you, challenge all of us to go out and, and, and live a Christian kind of life in whatever sphere God places you in. So it may mean that you are treating customers with real care and concern. It means that you refuse to exploit people's ignorance and Instead of doing that, you extend generosity in the place of exploiting their ignorance. It, it, it may mean that you display creativity and ingenuity in the arts without sacrificing ethical convictions. See, I, I hope that you will come to believe that no matter what sphere God has placed you in, he has placed potential, he has given you opportunity to reshape that work environment, that culture, for the good of that sphere and to say something that is true about about him now i want to be clear here i'm not i'm not suggesting in this okay this whole kind of sermon is not a call that says the mission of the church is cultural transformation okay that's not the mission of the church the pastors will not oversee 10 different nonprofits, and we are not trying to start our own political party here you know what i'm saying The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. What what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. It's about spiritual transformation, spiritual rebirth that then necessarily works itself out in every sphere of life. So cultural transformation is not the motivation of our mission, but it is the natural byproduct of being the people of God, the city of God and the city of man. You understand? So God is calling us to live as the city of God by dwelling in the city of man. But then the question then becomes, well, how on earth do we do this? And I think we get some really good instructions in verses 5 through 7. Let's look at those together. Jeremiah instructs them in this letter, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, in verse 7, I think is the key verse. Okay, It's our meta memo verse this week. We want to really know this verse. It says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Okay, So two kind of clear instructions about how we can seek the good of our city where God has placed us. So let's take those in reverse order. Number one, we should pray for the welfare of our city. We should pray to the Lord on its behalf. For you members out there, we have Connections class tonight if you're interested in membership. For you members out there, you know that you've signed our church covenant and our church covenant actually says that we're not going to pray for one another in, in the ministries of Redemption Hill, but we're going to pray for our city, Medford, greater Boston, and the world and seek its good by engaging in deeds of mercy and kindness, right? So, so one of our missional commitments as a church is to pray for our city. What does that look like? Well, we should pray for health, safety, security, protection, justice for the poor, unity, good education, economic progress, and opportunities for work and leisure to abound. I mean, we could keep on going there, but there are many, many ways that we can pray for the city where we live. Additionally, we can pray, as we're thinking on work here, we can pray that God would enable us to do good work, that we would work with skill, excellence, integrity. We can pray that as we go to work, that God would... Uh, work in our coworkers, that we could give thanks for our successes, that we could seek grace for the challenges that come our way in our work. And why should we pray? I mean, after all, I mean, people are going to say, look, it's the city. The, the, the city is, is evil. The city is irredeemable. And it is true the city is filled with sin, but why is that? Is it because this building that we're kind of in right now is inherently sinful? Is it because the sidewalks that we'll walk on out of here and the, and the, and the streets that we drive on? And come through, is, is it because all of those things are inherently sinful and evil? No. It's because sinful people live in our city, right? We take the good things that God has made and we corrupt them. And, and so the, the city is, 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 is filled with sin because it's filled with people. At the same time, the city is not only a place of great sin, but it's a, a place of great potential, right? So, so a lot of times people ask us, hey, why did you want to come to Boston plant a church? And there's really simple answers. Number one, there's an immense need. Two and a half percent of the population attends an evangelical church on any given Sunday. That's a pretty good reason to start a church in a place like that. Number two, the nations have gathered here, right? So people from all over the world have come here to live, to study, to work, to play, to do life so that they can have these opportunities. So our thought is, hey, if we can do something, however great or small, that God would use us in this global system, city with global influence, then we can touch the world. And I love how God's already doing that in our church and the diversity that he's already brought to our church. We're praying for more of it, you know what I'm saying? So the need, the nations, and then already hit the third one, and here, and the, the second one is, is the influence, right? So, so, so this is a, a center of education, government, media, the arts. The city is a strategic place 
and it is filled with opportunity. Some people might say the fourth reason is because of the Red Sox, but that's, uh, that's debatable, okay? <laughs> um, but the city is a strategic place, and, and, and let's just consider this, okay? Sociologist James Hunter makes this great point that a country could be 80% Christian and have very little cultural influence. Why is that? It's because if those 80% Christian people live out in the suburbs, in the rural areas, and not in the city where all of the culture making is going on, then they're still going to probably have very little influence over the larger society. So it's a call for us to love the city, to seek the good of the city, and to dwell in the city as the city of God in the city of man. Now, I'm not saying God does love rural areas and suburbs, all right? I grew up in suburb kind of areas, and, and so, I mean, God loves every place and people, but, but there is a strategic component of a city that offers so much opportunity for good, and it's our opportunity to take advantage of that. Now, here's the challenge, all right? And I want you to really examine kind of your own heart here. Um, there are two basic attitudes toward a city. You can either, on the one hand, use the city for your own benefit, or you can work for the good of the city to build the city. A lot of us, in our kind of just sinful you know, nature and selfish propensities, tend to use the city for our own benefit, right? So Boston is my ticket to a better life. Boston is my playground for greater pleasure. Boston is my waitress to serve my needs in life. So we come to, 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 to cities to, to, to be kind of a, really, it's like this parasitic relationship, you know what I'm saying? We just kind of are parasites, and we just kind of take from the city what we want that fulfills our needs rather than serving the cities in a sacrificial way. So, so, so instead of being selfish consumers, we can be sacrificial servants of a city and not be in the city to use the city, but be in the city to serve the city, to build the city. And so is that your posture? Is that your attitude? Is that why you are here in this place? To give yourself away? To serve others? To promote the good of this great city? Building the city for, for some of you, maybe, I mean, I know we have a lot of, a lot of people connected to Redemption Hill that are in, in, in undergrad, grad school. Maybe you've moved here for a, a first job, and maybe you're not planning on being here forever. That's okay. But, but maybe loving the city and building the city means you consider and you pray about staying a little longer than you originally planned. Maybe you stay an extra year, an extra two years to, to continue building these web of relationships and, and, and the places that God has put you through your work, through your school, through this church to seek to build the good of the city. This is what Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7 is, is talking about. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, we're talking about praying for the city as a strategic place, but it's not, just, it's not enough just to pray. We also need to seek the welfare, seek the most translations will say, seek the peace of the city. 
And, 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 th- and these words, okay, don't really convey the depth of the Hebrew word shalom that we find in verse 7. So, so when, you, when you read verse 7 and, 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 and saying pray to the Lord on its behalf and, and, and seek the, the welfare, the shalom of the city, what does that mean? Well, shalom is not simply the absence of conflict. That's what we most of the time think about when we think about peace, right? Just the absence of conflict. Just kind of this maybe inner, you know, feeling that we get when all is right in our little worlds, okay? But, but, but the peace that God wants for his people and wants for this world and will bring to this world, we'll talk about that in a little bit, is, is, is something much deeper than that. It's about human flourishing at its highest and best. It's about a world that resembles the world God intended in the beginning and will one day bring back fully restored. It's complete wholeness, complete fullness, complete harmony, complete abundance in every sphere of life. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about seeking the welfare, the peace, the shalom of the city. So how do we go about that? I want to give us three ways that we can go about that. Number one, pursue shalom by cultivating God's good creation. Pursue shalom by cultivating God's good creation. And we get this from verses 5 and 6. What does Jeremiah say again? I mean, this is like so simple, right? He's like, man, there's not much depth here. Think again, right? So build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your sons and uh, your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, this language reminds us of where we were two sermons ago, three Sundays ago, Genesis chapter 1, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, what some theologians call the cultural mandate, has the language of what? Be fruitful, multiply, subdue, cultivate, have dominion over this world that I have made and placed into your hands as you rule and reign under my larger rule and reign. So this is language that says we take God's good creation and cultivate it for his glory and the greater good of humanity. And this is what Mark Knoll uh, speaks of in his book, The The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Listen to what he says. I hope this is is really encouraging for many of you in these various spheres that he's going to talk about. He says this, Who, after all, made the world of nature? and then made possible the development of sciences through which we find out more about nature. Who formed the universe of human interactions and so provided the raw materials for politics, economics, sociology, and history? Who is the source of harmony and form and narrative pattern and so lies behind all artistic and literary possibilities? Who created the human mind in such a way that it could grasp the endless realities of nature, of human interactions, of beauty, and so make possible the theories of such matters by philosophers and psychologists? Who, moment by moment, sustains the natural world, the world of human interactions, and the harmonies of existence? Who maintains, moment by moment, the connections between what is in our minds and what is in the world beyond our minds? The answer in every case is the same God did it, and God does it. 
So whatever it is that you do under the sun, whatever your vocation may be, there is a God who is over all, behind it all, has made the world in a particular kind of way and has placed the raw materials into our hands by which we develop and cultivate and use for the good of others and his greater glory. So, so, so let's just consider this, okay? Crazy thought. What if we stop cultivating? What if we stop developing? What if we pull the philosophers and the politicians and the businessmen and women and, you know, the, the sanitation workers and just keep what happens? It's a chaotic mess. It's actually wilderness, right? It's wilderness. But, again, each of us have the opportunity to operate in the sphere God has placed us and reshape it for the greater good. So we want to pursue shalom by cultivating God's good creation. Number two, pursue shalom by practicing justice. I love Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what is that? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So God has placed us in this world that he has made that we would practice and pursue justice. Now let me give you a definition of justice that might be a little surprising to you. I really like it. It comes from an Old Testament scholar named Bruce Walk, and he says this. The righteous, the just, are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked or the unjust are willing to disadvantage the community to disadvantage or to advantage themselves. So, so justice is sacrificially serving someone else at maybe my own expense so that someone else can be advantaged and flourish. That's justice. Injustice is the exact opposite of that. So let me ask you, what, where is it that you can disadvantage yourself so that someone else can be advantaged? Where is it that you can make a sacrifice so that someone else can have the opportunity to flourish and to grow and to progress? We are called as those who belong to the city of God to take the posture of a servant. We talk about this all the time at Redemption Hill. We want to give of our time. We want to give of our resources. We want to engage in acts of mercy and goodness and kindness in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our individual relationships. So, so taking the posture of a servant in our city may mean that you serve at a community event. It may mean that you volunteer at a nonprofit. It may mean that you join the PTA. It may mean that you coach a little league team. It may mean that you help with one of our many community events throughout the course of the year. Soccer nights, serve Medford, turkey giveaways, Easter egg hunts. You fill in the blank. Or you get involved with a community group who are doing the very same things in a smaller kind of way. But there are countless opportunities for us to take the posture of a service, to, to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of 
someone else. It's all about being a good neighbor and doing our small part to make this city a better place. And by God's grace, I think it's happening. We are a church in the city for the city, and it is really cool and rewarding to see people take notice of that. Not because we want praise, but because we want God to be made known. And, and, and oh, by the way, okay, let me just address this. Okay? You, can, you can live as a, a, a Christian in your sphere and influence and reshape that particular sphere without quoting chapter and verse. I know somebody just got uncomfortable there, all right? You know what I'm saying? I'm, say, I'm saying we don't have to bring the Bible into every conversation, every project, every task, and say, you know what? God says this, so I'm going to do it this way, and you're acting out of line, so you need to bring it back here, okay? But at the same time, even though we don't have to quote chapter and verse, when we live this kind of way, when we display the gospel in this kind of way, there are going to be opportunities naturally that flow to quote chapter and verse. You know what I'm saying? as we pursue shalom by practicing justice. And then finally, which is wrapped up in the other two, pursue shalom, that's a mouthful, pursue shalom by doing excellent work. So we should do our job and do our jobs well. We should pursue a growing competence in whatever field that God has placed us. A great example of this was a few years ago. Do you remember the miracle on the Hudson? Captain Sully Sullenberger and crew land U.S. Airways Flight 1549 in the Hudson River and evacuate 155 people with no loss of life. Then they were awarded this, this uh, Master's Medal for Split Decision, make, uh, split decision Making, uh, Textbook Evacuation, and Heroic Achievement. I mean, it, it's, a, it's one example, a really big example, of how that competence is absolutely crucial in our work. So we don't just want to like, go to work and just kind of exist in our work, but we want to do our work and do our work really, really well. Because a quote that grabbed me in all my reading for this series, a quote that really grabbed me was this. It said, you can, you can sin in your vocation, and you can also sin against your vocation. In other words, if God has placed you there to make your vocation, your job, even better than it was than when you first came, and you don't fail to do that, then you're actually sinning against your vocation. So we need to work on our work. I mean, our attitude as leaders of this church is we don't want to just plant a church and lead one church, but we want to be in a position to bless hundreds, thousands of churches by the, the, the small things that God does in this church. It's an, it's an attitude of, of pursuing competence and, and making a contribution where God has placed us. I love what Dorothy Sayers says about how the church should encourage those in the workplace. Look at this. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be a drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is, is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Make good tables, do good works, keep the books clean. Do your job and do it well. Now, here's some good news. When we seek the shalom of the city, there are two awesome results that flow from our seeking the shalom of the city. All right? Number one is right here in verse 7. 
for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, you make the city, the country, this nation a better place, and you're going to naturally benefit from that. All right? If you retreat, withdraw, and, and the place continues to, to be degraded, then you're going to reap the, the results of that as well. So, so seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare your, you will find your own welfare there. But then number two, all of this, okay? All of our work, all of our relationships, all of our parenting, all of our trips to the grocery store, all of our cultivation, all of this points to something much, much, much greater. And that is the coming city of God. Let me explain. Every good deed, every good work, every time someone is given a cup of cold water, and given a meal. It is saying something about the coming kingdom of God, the city of God, where there will no longer be anyone who is hungry or thirsty. When we bind up the brokenhearted, when we care for people who are really going through it and struggling because of injustice and abuse, we are, we are showing them that there will no longer be injustice and abuse in the coming city of God. Every good deed, every good work communicates something that will be true of the city that is to come, the city that we are to seek and chase after and exemplify and portray in everything that we do. And so this is why we hear this intense reverberation in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. I want to read it one more time. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So don't, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. So you in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we live as this city within a city, we have opportunity to let our light shine so that others may benefit from that light and hopefully come to receive this same light and give glory to our great God who is in heaven. So here's the deal. As we consider how to dwell as the city of God in the city of man, and as we seek to Pursue the welfare, peace, shalom of our city. Here's kind of the hook, okay? We cannot seek the flourishing of the city in a, in, a, in a real true sense, in a holistic kind of way, if we have not first experienced the flourishing and the shalom and the peace that God gives us through a relationship with Christ. You cannot shine a light that you do not have. So my question to you is, have you received the light of the world, Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the peace that he desires to give to every person on the planet? I mean, if, if we were to ask you, hey, do you have peace with God? Like when you go to bed at night, do you have peace with God? When you come to die and you stand before God, will, will you have peace with him at that point? Because if that's in question, let me hold out Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus came, left the city that was, entered our space and time, our city, to make us citizens of his city. So if, if, if you need to receive this gift, here's the, here's the beautiful part, okay? 
the peace that God gives, that, that, that Romans 5 talks about, therefore we, having been justified by faith, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that kind of peace is not simply the absence of conflict. It is not just that we have laid down our arms of rebellion against God and he has canceled that out, but he gives us so much more than just the absence of conflict with him. God forgives us of our unrighteousness and he gives us the righteousness of Christ. God cancels our sin debt and he gives us an inestimable inheritance in him. So so it's not just, hey, man, I need to be kind of my sins forgiven and, and be brought from, from this residence, but it's to a whole nother residence, a whole nother city, a whole nother benefit, a whole nother experience of God's deep and furious and amazing love. So have you received this peace and flourishing that God desires to give you? If you haven't, cry out to God today. Like right now, it's a good time to say, God, you know what? Man, I need you. I want this peace that, that Tanner is talking about, and, and I can receive it through faith in, in Jesus Christ in what he has done. Not that what I could do to work my way to you, but what he has done, his work on my behalf. That's how we become citizens of the city of God, and that's when we are in the place to let our light shine and flourish in the city of man. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for bringing us to this city. And God, it's our greatest prayer this morning that, first and foremost, that that we as individuals here would would know what it means to be part of the kingdom of God, to be citizens of the city of God. And so, Lord, for for those that may be wrestling with that and and, and curious if they have peace with you, or maybe they know that I don't have peace with God, Lord, would you show them Christ and his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection and how that he died that we might have life and become citizens of God your great city. So God, if, you, if there are people here today who need to receive that gift, Lord, lead them to do so even now. And Father, for those of us who, who know you, God, would you, would you show us what it means to, to know your light, to shine your light, to be seeking the flourishing of, of our workplaces, of our neighborhoods, of, of the businesses that we frequent. Lord, there is endless potential in this room to to be agents of change, positive influence for the city of Medford, the city of Boston. So God, would you change us? Would you use us? Would you help us to expect great things from you? That you are the God of this city and the God of every city. That you desire to do great things and that you amazingly have chosen to do great things through us. So God, make us instruments in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.